It's 2022 and the EAE podcast is back. I'm Laura Rumbly, Associate Director for Knowledge Development and Research here at the European Association for International Education, and this is episode number 34 in our series. I am so looking forward to the year ahead in which we are aiming to bring you a wide range of voices and conversations focused on issues that somehow intersect with the world of international higher education. Thanks so much for tuning in. Our guest for this episode is Ellen Hazelcorn. For those of you who aren't familiar with Ellen, she's had a truly remarkable career in higher education. She's held leadership positions at several Irish higher education institutions and played an active role in a number of national-level higher education organizations in Ireland, where she's been based for the bulk of her professional career. She's also been very active at European and global levels for over 20 years as a higher education policy consultant and specialist with international organizations such as the European Commission, OECD, the World Bank, UNESCO, and more. And Ellen regularly undertakes strategic and research evaluations for European and national research and scientific councils and universities. Importantly for this conversation, Ellen is recognized globally for her deep expertise on university rankings, how they're constructed, what they can do and cannot do, and how they affect all kinds of dynamics in the higher education sector. She's just wrapped up the work of editing a new book on the subject, so we thought it was the perfect moment to check in for an update on the pluses and minuses of university rankings today from her expert perspective. Ellen, it is so wonderful to connect with you as always. I wonder if you could tell us where you're joining us from today. So I'm in Dublin, and um, for once, the last few days have been very sunny. So it's what I call sun, sun, sun. <laughs> wonderful. That makes me uh, happy to think about because it has not been very sunny here in the Netherlands. <laughs> well, we're here to talk about rankings, um, something that I know you are quite familiar with, and very much so currently because you've got a new book on rankings that's coming out with contributions from authors from around the world. And in reflecting on that work, I was wondering if you might be able to share one or two developments or insights that really caught your attention from that work. And so I think the heart of my question is, is there anything new under the sun when it comes to rankings? New under the sun. Well, I expect what's always interesting is that despite all the criticisms and the commentary about it, they still influence. There's still a factor in, in universities and there's still a factor in governments. And we see that quite a lot. Um, a title from a Chronicle in, um, in September says, colleges still obsess over national rankings. For proof, look at their strategic plans. And um, that's absolutely true. Look at um, governments as well. I think that's really, I expect, one of the things that amazes. I think one of the things we spend not sufficient time looking at is the business of rankings, the business model of rankings. And um, certainly we've got some of that covered in the book, but not enough exposure and thinking about this. And what I see is the integration increasingly between rankings, publishing, and big data. And that bringing together of all that, that ownership of data, that is really one of the big moves that we've seen a lot of. Having that data is a real money spinner. It's monetizing higher education information. You've already talked about the fact that, you know, rankings are here despite a lot of criticism over the years, 20 years worth of criticism at this point. 
What is your opinion on this? Is it possible to build criticism-free rankings? What can be done about this debate about the negative sides of, of rankings? Well, I think the difficulty with rankings as a methodology or as a format is that um, to make it simple, you have to you have to choose a limited number of indicators. And so you're squishing a lot of information into that. And it's large, and it is, well, not largely, it is a quantitative mechanism. There's no indicators, not even the ones we use to assess performance about whether we like different restaurants or not that are value-free. And so that's ultimately an issue. So the question that always, um, just always arises is whether what's being measured is meaningful. So I use the word meaningful as opposed to appropriate or whatever, because the question is, you know, can we meaningfully measure the quality or the outcomes or how do we do things? And all indicators, any way we look at issues, there are plus and minuses. And I expect we need to, to weigh up what we think are the ones we can live with or more meaningful and one which really um, distort. And um, we run increasingly into um, the issue of international comparability in a global world is inevitable. We have to operate in an international world. And so those issues of comparability are really quite important. And likewise, the issues of accountability. And those twin issues drive different mechanisms or tools or instruments for how we look at at performance and quality. I think also, you know, as I've been reflecting on rankings over the years, the the notion of perspective or of, of balance somehow has always been really high on my agenda in the sense that there's a place for rankings potentially, but in a in a soup of other kinds of inputs that one might use to make sense of institutions or systems. And I don't know how you feel about that. Well, the question is, is the the extent to which they then dominate. And then the way in which they dominate means that all the other issues around higher education disappear. So again, you know, some of the, uh, the case studies are interesting in the book, but so are all the articles that the chapters that that give different types of perspectives, and what we see is that yes, there are new areas that are now of policy and and public interest, um, societal engagement, the quality of student learning, the issues of local and regional, all these other dimensions or innovation. They're very very difficult to assess. We're not comparing like with like, and hence the way in which the rankings operate again is a small um, set of indicators that largely reinforce each other. And they're predominantly around um, wealth and social class. And um, I expect the rankings business is a business, and we and that's not always clear to people that it is a business looking for new markets. And one of their new markets is to find ways in which they can salami slice the different indicators. So I see now that U.S. News World Report, obviously in the U.S., is developing a rankings of primary schools. Well, 
this is really driving again this approach to elite education and so on. And this approach to it, it's no different than the Irish Times in Ireland looking at feeder schools, which what they mean is which are the secondary schools that students attend to get into the into which universities. And that's essentially all the same thing. It's not looking at that breadth of diversity horizontally. It's looking at a very uh, vertical, hierarchical sense. And um, those aren't necessarily the values we, we want to see. There are so many different angles to the, the ranking story. It seems like a gift that keeps on giving in terms of ideas and debates and controversy. I was wondering how you were originally drawn to this subject and you know came to find it something that you wanted to really dive into and explore with some depth. Yeah, yeah. so I was um, working with the OECD. I worked with them for almost about 10 years as a, as a consultant. You know, work, I did a couple of projects. This was the second. And um, around 2006, it was clear that rankings... Now, we realized that the first rankings was really 2003, um, strictly speaking, with the Shanghai, and really took off then in 04. So by 06, it was clear into a range of things that the rankings issue was now quite an important one, or it was quite interesting what was happening. And I did um, an initial piece of work for the OECD with... Um, the IAU, the International Association of Universities, and jointly used their, um, compiled a survey of members. And it's gone from there. And um, whether I like it or not, it just continues to follow me around. Did I know almost 20 years later I'd still be at this? No, I did not. <laughs> Oh, but that's, yeah, and it has developed a lot. We've gone away from looking just at the indicators in a narrow sense to looking at much more these wider sense. And I think it gives us a, an insight into what's happened in terms of the globalization or the geopolitics of higher education. You had mentioned earlier also this notion of comparability um, and, and now this um, you know, global dynamic in which we're operating. I was wondering if you could say a little something about how you see rankings affecting international education specifically, however you might frame or define that notion or phenomenon. A very interesting topic for our audience at the EAE, of course. Yeah, of course. So first of all, international students often look at this. So you have the student side of it. And hence, you also have the university and the government side of it, particularly governments and institutions that want to rely on the fee income and want to see that as, as a fee income, you know, students as cash cow kind of approach. But we've also got the issue that rankings are really an indicator of positioning of, and reputation. So those kinds of issues. And we see then the way in which student, um, international students and faculty are used as an indicator within both the Times and, the, and QS in the main. Meaningless indicators because it suggests, well, right, we should um, disavow domestic students or domestic faculty because we want to somehow get international. And yet we have no real definition of what this means. Um, there's also a false sense that if you that you can easily improve your numbers and this will 
significantly. And there is no, aside from making sure that your affiliation on your university research or your publications and people call themselves the same thing, you know, you're all called X person at X university and that's it not your own making up center or you're making up something else. Uh, beyond that, everything costs. And there is no simple way of increasing one's position in, in rankings. So many institutions um, spend a lot of time wanting to look at that, fear that if they're not in the rankings, um, this will hurt their international recruitment and so on. And they really need to look at improving their quality of their learning environment, the quality of their offering, and look at ways of um, positioning themselves in terms of the uniqueness of their approach to teaching and learning, their engagement with their region, the types of um, out, um, you know, I might say if you're, if you're talking about practice-based learning, then how do you show that? Is that a key format across it? So how is it that you do that? Because thinking you're going to jump in the rankings, you're not. We've all been living, as, as we've discussed earlier on in our private conversation before we got started with, um, with our podcast here, the realities of the COVID-19 pandemic and all the effects that they've exerted. Do you see any kind of altered future for the world of university rankings on the basis of the effects of the pandemic? Is it exerting any kind of influences that you can see? Well, you would think that um, they would become less influential. I mean, the Times Higher announced at one stage that given all that was going on, they were not going to do the modifications that they thought they otherwise had planned. And you think, hmm, is that all? And you have to ask, are they still fit for purpose? Um, Given the fact that the kind of environment and the issues that we're now looking at are quite different than the time in which they started. So if you look at rankings as, as taking off in the early part of this century, you know, as I said, about 2003, we're really on a cusp of the, of the explosion of globalization and internationalization of higher ed. Um, yes, it was there, but really quite the expansive phase of globalization. Now we've got a whole different set of issues on the agenda, not just equity, but equity is a big one people being left behind. We see that not just as students and widening um, participation, but we see that in terms of social political unrest. Uh, We see that in terms of of issues around regionalism and divergence and regional gaps. And governments are very focused around a lot of these issues. And and, and there are um, other kinds of, of issues that we are focused on. And so you wonder, well, to what extent are rankings still relevant for mass participation societies? And yet they find ways. The uh, most pernicious, I think, is the Times Impact one, which is riding the horse of the SDGs. Um, And yet they're predominantly research. And they collect a huge amount of information provided by universities to them to be evaluated behind closed doors through no transparent evaluation process. And anyone who has done a research evaluations of any sort will know that this is a massive undertaking with people who need to know what they're doing. So they're getting hundreds 
of universities supplying hundreds of data and they're assessing it? Give me a break. So some very heavy and important things for us to consider about what's going on with rankings now and what we can expect as we move forward during this really, really uncertain and complicated time. Yeah. We don't have a lot of time to spend together, but I was wondering if you might give us a couple more minutes of your time to end on a bit of a light note in this conversation. We did a little digging on a website called ranker.com and discovered some playful university-themed ranking exercises that users of that site develop and and put out into the world for people to participate in. And we wanted to challenge you, oh, global university rankings expert, with three questions connected to those ranking exercises. If you'll bear with me. I know the answers. (laughs) As I say, the stakes are not very high here, but let's give it a go. All right. First, there is on this website a ranking of the best fictional colleges and universities. And at number two in that ranking, they have Springfield University. In which animated television program is this institution featured? A, The Simpsons, B, Family Guy, or C, South Park? I'm not sure I know any of them. I'm going to guess The Simpsons. Oh, you're right. Good guess. I got something. (laughs) Very funny. Um, According to the U.S. Geological Survey, there are currently 34 populated places named Springfield in 25 U.S. states. And the the creators of The Simpsons keep it a mystery. They're never specific about which state, and they drop a lot of contradictory clues in a number of the episodes. But you're right. Okay, one for one. Well, I'm from Illinois, and Springfield is the capital. And R. Abraham Lincoln came from there. So I think it came from Springfield. But anyways, yes. Very nice. Okay. Okay. Great start. Second question for you. The best college movies ever ranking has Goodwill Hunting in third place. Did you ever see Goodwill Hunting? I did. Okay. This movie starring Matt Damon and Robin Williams went on to win two Oscars in 1997. Which Oscar did it not win? A, best original screenplay. B, best soundtrack, or C, best supporting actor? I'm going to guess soundtrack. Wonderful. You got it again. Yep. (laughs) Nine nominations, but they only won two, best original screenplay and best supporting actor for the late Robin Williams. So very good. Okay. (laughs) And set in Boston, that movie, my adopted city. Okay, last set in Boston. Yeah, it was very New England. Yeah, very much. And they they had these really great shots right in Harvard Square, which if you lived there at the time, you know, you had sat right there, you know, where the characters were having a coffee. It was very nice. Okay, last but not least, which one of the following three options tops the ranking of the strangest real college courses? A, the economics of Britney Spears. B, the astrophysics of Taylor Swift, or C, the sociology of Miley Cyrus. What's the last one? The sociology of Miley Cyrus. Well, I don't know who that is. Um, okay. That, well, that's a good one to pick. <laughs> <laughs> I like your approach, Ellen, because it is correct. <laughs> the sociology of Miley Cyrus Race, Class, Gender, and Media is a course offered by Skidmore College in New York. And to quote, um, it provides rich examples for analyzing aspects of intersectional identities and media representation. 
Is this what politicians call the um, call the kind of courses that should be dropped because they're completely meaningless? <laughs> I will have to consult the uh, <laughs> the uh, professor. This is course. a constant theme, I think, in the UK. <laughs> Exactly. Well, you know what? This is the beauty of electives. I think it lets us branch out yes. <laughs> in different directions. Well, thank you, Ellen, so much for the very serious and important information you brought from your expertise on rankings and for having a little fun with us about this topic as well. It's been a pleasure as always to speak with you. Thanks very much. Anytime. That was Ellen Hazelcorn, one of the foremost global experts and analysts of university rankings. Some of you may recall that Ellen was awarded the EAIE's Tony Adams Award for Excellence in Research in 2018 for her outstanding work on the rise of international university rankings. Our session notes provide links to some more recent research and commentary from Ellen on this perennially hot topic in case you'd like to explore more. And if you want to explore more opportunities with the EAE, now is the ideal time to secure your EAIE membership for 2022. As an EAIE member, you'll benefit from significant discounts on the Online Academy Spring Training Program. You'll also be able to attend this year's EAIE Community Summit, taking place on March 10th and 11th, for free. Registration for these events will open in the coming weeks, so please visit our website for the latest updates. And if you have more colleagues who could benefit from the EAE, please take a look at our group membership packs that are available for a short time. The EAE website has all the details. Visit www.eae.org and click on Join Us. That closes out this episode. The next installment of the EAE podcast will be available in two weeks' time, and we hope you'll listen in again. Until then, all good wishes to you from the EAE.